0: we pray as we begin tonight. Let me pray. Father, uh, we give you thanks because you are a great and gracious God. Uh, You have uh, lavished your grace upon us through what Christ has done in our behalf. And when we are in our right minds, when um, our minds are filled with uh, those incredible realities... Uh, we are most thankful and most uh, most full of gratitude for what you've done for us. And when that's the case, we tend to be different people in the way that we treat others. And so we ask you tonight to help us as we continue to think about the, the riches of what it means to be united to Christ, what it, what it means to be uh, a part of... Um, the glory of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that will we be able to unpack it and take it to to the places where all of us live uh, moment by moment, day by day. So would you give us your grace? Would you send your Spirit? Help us to that end for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay. Um, what, I, what I kind of outlined last week was... Uh, this always happens. <laughs> um, I would have never made a good musician. Um, <clears throat> we're talking about a, um, an upward orientation, first great commandment, and then a horizontal orientation, second great commandment. First great commandment, uh, I won't insult you, but it's what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, that's a vertical, horizontal, to love your neighbors, yourself. Our problems as sinners, because of the fall is uh, our worship goes amok, and uh, as a result, so does this. And uh, oftentimes, because our worship goes bad, we tend to replace the worship of the true God for something in creation. And we we either use relationships to get what we want, or we stiff-arm people to keep from getting what we don't want. Okay, And what... What the gospel does, what union with Christ does, is it reorients us first vertically and then horizontally. So union with Christ is God's redemptive, gracious work whereby we're we're transformed uh, from the inside out. Um, we, we worship uh, rightly and then we interact with others in different ways. Um, got a couple of quotes here at the top. I don't know how many outlines you've had recently where Bono, Bruce Coburn, and John Calvin have been sandwiched together, but um, I, I want to read these uh, just just um, for recording purposes. Here's a quote from uh, Bono, who's the, the lead singer of U two. Uh, this is not in a song; it's just an interview. He says, "The hardest thing to do is stick together, mates, family, marriage, business, bands. It's like resisting gravity. The alternative is too predictable." You rid the room of argument, you empty your life of the people you need the most. I like that. You rid the room of argument and you, you empty your life of the people you need the most. Here's my definition of uh, what we're going to talk about tonight, conflict. Um, conflict is God's counterintuitive way of rescuing you from yourself. All right? Is that nuanced and... Conflict is God's counterintuitive way of rescuing you from yourself. And I think that's what, what Bono is saying. When you rid the room of people that disagree with you, with whom you are in conflict, you, uh, you empty your life of the people you need the most, because it's within the context of that conflict that God is revealing stuff about you that you need to see that you wouldn't see were it not for those people in your life. Um. Here's a quote from uh, Bruce Coburn. This is a song, uh, Dan- uh, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. is from his Stealing Fire album, 1982, maybe. I can't remember, early 80s. Um, but I like it. It's a nice, gritty song that's got a, just a sense of redemption in the midst of the chaos. It says, When your lover's in a dangerous time, sometimes you're made to feel as if your love's a crime. But nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. You've got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Um, there's a there 's a way of kicking against the darkness that 's redemptive and and godly conflict is pushing against kicking against the darkness, so something redemptive emerges and then just a quote from Calvin that we had last week again if you want to you want to read anything on union with christ you 're probably not going to do any better than john calvin 's third book in the institutes and here 's from book three. Uh, section 6, paragraph 4. He says, "...we have given the first place to the doctrine in which our religion is contained, since our salvation begins with it, but it must enter our hearts and pass along to our daily living." He's talking about union with Christ. "...and so transform us into itself that it may not be unfruitful for us. The gospel's efficacy ought to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart, take its seat in the soul, and affect the whole man a hundred times more deeply than the cold exhortations of the philosophers. And you could substitute cold exhortations of the philosophers with any kind of moralistic system of change. You know, stop doing that and start doing this. Um, So, yeah, just... uh, throwing those in for your, your own entertainment. Let me, let me start, um, and for some of you who take my class, I, I talk about conflict, and some of this won't be new to you, but it um, doesn't look like many of you have taken my class, so uh, this will be fresh to most of you. Let me start with myself, okay? Uh, here, here's, um, here's what happens to me. As a, as a Christian, as someone who's united to Christ, um, uh, sinner and saint at the same time, right? The, the The struggle with remaining sin abides, and oftentimes i don 't know about you you know i I know how how strong the pull of remaining sin is in my life, and the dominion of sin has been broken in my life i'm just i, I just can 't imagine what the, what it must have been like to to be dominated by sin i can't even you know i can 't even look back and uh, and get a sense of that because at the time I was blind to it um, but Remaining sin is very powerful, and it it rears its ugly head in my life every single day. Here's, here's one typical scenario, and I want to start here. We're going to look at a passage, and then I want to end with the same scenario, kind of a take two. Take one, I'm leaving work at 5 o'clock, and uh, as I'm leaving work, um, one of my... Typical objects of worship other than the living God is something that uh, we call comfort and and comfort is kind of an intangible thing but it's it's a it's a place it's kind of an existential experience i 'm calm everything's right with the world i I just love comfort and I can find myself living for comfort and i 'm on my way home and i 'm beginning to worship comfort so my my worship is beginning to to steer off the path that it should be on. I'm no longer worshiping, functionally worshiping, the living and true God who's redeemed me in Christ. I begin to think about worship. I begin to meditate on it. Um, I begin to do like the psalmist says. I begin to taste it. You know, the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, I'm starting to taste and see how good comfort is. Um, it's uh, it's become beautiful to me. There's an aesthetic part of this, this temporal kind of experience of comfort. So I'm driving home, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of sneaking up on me. I'm not even really thinking about it, but I'm just thinking I, I'm tired. I can't wait till I get home. I'm going to get some rest. I'm going to sit down, get something to drink, turn the TV on, no interruptions. Well, that used to work when I was single, you know, But it doesn't work anymore now that I'm married and I have four children. And what happens when I'm worshiping comfort and over about a five to ten minute drive from here to Jenkintown, I walk in my back door. Uh, I've got four kids and they're all over the map. You know, two of them are arguing over the computer. Two of them are struggling with their homework. My wife's tired because she's been working all day. And, And what's happening? I've given myself over to comfort. And guess what? I've got five people now that are threatening my ability to get it. And and what I do? I I uh, I grew up in a military home, so I know something about military protocol. So I I drop into drill sergeant mode, and I begin to bark orders. You know, I don't I don't swing hands and slap people. Some people do that. You know, thankfully by God's grace, I don't do that. Um, But I come in and I'm agitated, I'm irritable, I I launch into drill sergeant mode, I begin to bark orders, I raise my voice, I might yell, and I get these two children, and I get them situated, I get these two children, and I get them situated, and what happens at the end of that experience is that my children have been sinned against by me, in my irritability, in my agitation, in my raised voice, in my harsh kind of demands and commands I have sinned against them. I've broken, really, I've broken the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Uh, The the seed of murder is in my heart at that moment. I don't want you to get in my way to get what I want. So I drop into control mode, and as soon as I get them controlled and organized and arranged, then guess what? I've got my comfort back, and everything's okay again. Uh, Until about three minutes later, and they start arguing again. All right, there's there's a picture just a very tangible picture concrete picture of what happens when as Christians we're not living functionally out of this union with Christ uh, I'm in union at that moment with something other than Christ functionally now now legally in my relationship with God has anything changed no but functionally I have been I've been uh, giving myself over to something other than union with Christ and what happens it impacts the way that I interact with my kids, um, my wife catches the brunt of it too. All right, now I, I don't. I don't think that that's an. It's an example that's too hard for most of you to get on board with. Uh, it may not be comfort for you. It may be approval. It may be a um, uh, um, hundred thousand other things. But that's that's the place where you, union with Christ has got to get applied in the way that Calvin says and penetrate the inmost affections of the heart and take its seat in the soul and affect my whole person, all right? Not just what's going on internally, but also what I'm doing with my my attitude, my words, my actions. Uh, Union with Christ, if it doesn't transform me at that level, is not union with Christ applied. It may be theoretically understood and assented to, but it hasn't, it hasn't penetrated to the inmost affections. Now, look at James 4. You got your outline there, and I'm going I'm to skip some of this. Um, look at James 4. James 4 is all about conflict. Remember, we're talking about union with Christ. Last week, I chose to focus on the metaphor of marriage as being one of the primary metaphors, I think, in Scripture that that is used to to unpack what it means to be in a relationship with the living God. So look at James 4, and you'll see this metaphor get dropped in there. It gets dropped in negatively, but it's also saying something positive at the very uh, same time. James 4, 1 through, I'll just read 1 through 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Why do you have conflict? Why do you argue? Why do you get irritable? Why do you drop into drill sergeant mode? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's that active kicking against the darkness, right? Come near to God and he will come near to you. This is repentance and faith. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And let me, let me go ahead and read these next couple of verses. Brothers, do not slander one another. Here's the horizontal again. Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, um, let's just unpack this um, and talk about conflict and then apply it as we, uh, as we think about union with Christ. First of all, um, you see the, uh, the cause of ungodly conflict. What James points out here, the cause is um, a cause that we just immediately, instinctively avoid admitting. What does he say the cause of conflict is? Yeah, it's, it's what? It's, it's what's going on in you. And what's our typical M.O., when we engage in conflict with another person. Our typical MO is this. I wouldn't have gotten so agitated and irritated if you two hadn't have been arguing over the computer. I would have been kinder and gentler if you had obeyed me like you were supposed to. You know what the Bible says. Ephesians 6, one. Say it. Repeat it out loud. Children, obey your parents. All right? And, uh, or I, I, I would have been much more patient... If the day had been less pressure filled, or if I hadn't lost a lot of sleep last night because I was worried about what was going to happen today, you know, with the stuff that I had to face. But what am I doing? My typical MO is to point outside of me circumstances, other people. And James does what? He does just the opposite. He says, The problem is that there's something amok in you. And he's basically saying there's a worship problem. You've got these battles that are raging within you, and uh, you've got these desires. You want something, but you don't get it. See, I want comfort, and I don't get it. And guess what? You're the one that's in my way of getting comfort, and guess what? You won't like dealing with me. And the next time I come home, you see, if I don't grow in grace, my kids are going to start saying, "Uh uh-oh, dad's coming home, we better, you know... Do the routine, or we're going to get it. Um, so, you know, anger works for people. Um, and people use all kinds of ways to get what they want. Look look what else is going on here, too. Um, it says, you want something, but you, you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have... Listen to this. You do not have because you do not ask God. So there are desires that are, that are uh, warring inside... You don't have because you don't ask God. So already, God is being kind of eclipsed from the horizon of your sight. And then he says, and if you do ask, if you do think about God in the moment, typically what you're doing is you're saying, all right, God, give me what I want. You know, will you be my errand boy right now and make sure my kids do what they need to be doing? How come you're not delivering the goods for me, God? I've I've been at work all day. I've been I've been talking to people about the gospel and counseling them and trying to help them change and you know love their wives and their kids and I come home and how come you don't do that with my kids? Um so what am I doing? I'm you know if I'm thinking about God, I'm beginning to do what? I'm beginning to treat him as if I'm God and he's to serve me rather than the other way around and and James says we're very good at this. Um and then then, uh, so so anyway, the, the the basis here of diagnosing your anger is you have got to start with yourself. You've got to take a hard look at what's going on inside. Now let me let me just bump to kind of the cure of ungod uh, of of ungodly anger and how you move towards. Uh, Godly conflict. What does it look like to kick against the darkness in a redemptive way? Um, and that you can see there about, about five or six things I just want to talk about here. The first thing that James says you have to do if you're going to grow in grace, if you're going to uh, move down a different path in terms of redemptive godly conflict, is what we've just been talking about. You've got to engage in good self-examination. Here's what you should ask yourself when you are experiencing conflict with somebody else. First thing you ought to ask yourself is, what do I want right now more than the living God that I'm not getting? Or what am I getting right now from this other person that I don't want? So in light of verses 1 through 3, the first step towards a cure for ungodly conflict and moving towards godly conflict is just good, honest self-examination. Now, there's a cycle here because you're not going to do that unless you're confident in the gospel. Um, And that's what comes next. The second thing that's a part of growing toward godly conflict, and this is connecting with our whole topic of union with Christ, is, you see on your outline there, communion with Christ, intelligent repentance and faith. And I want you to look at these verses here and see what's going on. Uh, They're they're somewhat difficult verses to unpack, but I think think I'm moving down a right path as I um, exegete these and interpret them and apply them. Look what he says in verses uh, 4, 5, and 6. This is uh, a passage that's... Disturbing at the same time comforting. First of all, it's disturbing. You adulterer. All right? What do you have to be to be an adulterer? You have to be married. Okay? So at the very moment that this passage is kind of a scathing indictment of where you are spiritually, it's also a wonderful reminder that you're married to somebody else. And here's the marriage metaphor that I think Scripture uses to talk about union with Christ. We're in a relationship with the living God. We're married to the living God. When these desires take over, what's going on? We become spiritual adulterers. We're putting ourselves in the arms of other lovers. We're in extramarital relationships, if you will. And James would describe these as fatal attractions. Uh, They're no good. They're only going to lead to your destruction. So he says, you adulterous people, don't you know? And then he uses another metaphor here that we could unpack. Uh, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? So what are you doing? You're trading friendship with God for friendship with something else. And you can't do that. You can't be loyal to God and loyal to something else at the same time, in the same way. And, and so, again, while it's disturbing... And, uh, and uncomfortable, there's still this hint of grace that's coming through in this passage. And then, then the flood of grace begins to, to get revealed as you continue to press through these verses. Um, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Again, very scathing. But look at verse 5. Do uh, or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, what's all that about? Here's, here's what all that is about. I think what these verses are saying, and it, they're, they're difficult verses to interpret, but I think basically the, this is what it's saying. When, when you give yourself to a false lover other than the le- living God, guess what? God gets jealous and enters the fray and enters conflict in your behalf. All right. If I went home tonight and I told my wife... Just kind of in casual conversation. Yeah, um, I had an affair this week. And she's washing dishes and she says, yeah, well, that's fine. I'm sure we'll get through it. What would I conclude in terms of her reaction if she, if she didn't get angry? If she, I mean, if she didn't maybe even throw something at me, I would think she doesn't love me. She doesn't really care. There's no jealousy there. There's no zeal for our marriage. If Me having an extramarital relationship doesn't upset her. What's God doing here? He's saying you have entered into an extramarital relationship and I will have nothing to do with that. You will not get away with that. You are married to me. And so what the verses are saying, look, God jealously longs for you. The spirit that he put in you jealously longs for your undivided attention and affection. I think that's, that's the, the point there. So again, this marriage metaphor. And then he says this. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's what's going on. I'm driving home, and I'm giving myself to comfort. And God in his grace, through the work of the Spirit, is what? Pursuing me. Relentlessly pursuing me at that very moment. And... When I repent and believe, guess what? He pours grace on me. So in the midst of my adultery, spiritual adultery, God pursues me in his grace. I repent and humble myself because of his grace. And then what does he do? Pour more grace on me. Um, what's, the, what's the big question here that you have to ask in light of these verses? And I'm going to illustrate this at the end. Here's what I've got to ask myself. What particularly has hijacked my affections? So it's, it's a continuation of the first question, but, but it gets a little more specific. In what way has my worship of the living God defected? Here's another way of thinking about it. What in, the, in creation has morphed and become my creator? All right, for me, it's something temporal like comfort. Um. Is it power, success, approval, comfort, peace? And what do I need to repent of and what do I need to believe? Specifically, what about Christ and His grace for me do I need to see? All right, you see that? Now, let me, I'm going to say this right now. What, what I'm doing here is I'm not offering you kind of an, a Christian version of cognitive therapy. Okay, Are you to think on these things and are you to meditate on who you are in Christ? All the blessings of grace that are yours? Yes. But it's more than that. It's communion. It's relationship. It's not just me telling myself positive things about who I am in Christ. That's part of it. But it's no, it's me crying out and saying... God, thank you for what you've done. Help me. Rescue me. Give me your grace. I need it. It's this this vertical reorientation that starts happening that expresses itself in a relational interchange between you and the living God. It's more than cognitive reorientation. Okay, Is, Is that part of it? Sure. But that's only... Uh, an aspect. Now, look look what happens. um, You don't see this explicitly in the passage. Well, let let me say this. Look what happens in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. All that is is a description of repentance. So, verses 4 and 5 are this disturbing indictment of what I've become functionally and yet at the same time an encouraging reminder of who I really am. I'm married to the living God. Then there's this rich promise of the, the, the zealous, jealous work of the Spirit in my behalf, this promise of grace that comes to those who humble themselves. And then in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's just a wonderful picture of, of repentance, submitting yourself to God, resisting the devil, Coming near to God. He will come near to you. Then there's this washing your hands. There's a, a behavioral change that needs to take place. A purifying of your hearts. See, there's a divided loyalty. I'm double-minded. And, and, and that's being purified so that I'm single-minded again in my devotion. Um, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. So there's this cycle of faith and repentance and repentance and faith this dynamic that uh, Robert Latham in his book, The Work of Christ, talks about. If repentance and faith is not evident in your life in this way, then Latham says there's, there's no union with Christ because union with Christ expresses itself practically in a life of repentance and faith. Repentance, seeing what I've forsaken Christ for, faith, seeing who Christ is and all of His glory and His grace and His beauty and running to Him, fleeing to Him and crying out for help in that very moment. Okay? Now, look what happens. Once once that vertical reorientation happens, guess guess what begins to happen? This horizontal reorientation starts to occur. Um, Verses 11 and 12 talk about what? Not slandering other people. Now, other people are on my radar again, but guess what? They're not people that I'm going to use to get what I want or I'm going to stiff-arm to keep out of the way of getting what I want. They're people that now I'm going to move towards in love, to serve. And this gets unpacked more in 1 Peter uh, 3, 7, and 8. Um, I'm going I'm to move on, though, because I want to... What it, well, let me, let me just say this. What does 1 Peter 3, 7 and 8 say? It says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And I think you can apply that to both genders. What does it mean? It means that I, I live with another person in an understanding way. I, I want to get in their shoes and I want to say, as I look at myself from their perspective, what does it feel like to be in a relationship with me? I want to do that with my wife. You know, right now, at this moment, what must it feel like for my wife to be dealing with me? What does it feel like for my kids to be, you know, the brunt of, on the receiving end of my drill sergeant kind of M.O.? What does it feel like for you to be in conflict with me right now? You're beginning to think about the other person and you're beginning to think about what it must be like. What is their experience like for them to be in a relationship with you? And then it moves even further. First um, Thessalonians five, fourteen through seventeen. you begin to move towards other people in love. And what I love about the Bible is it's, it's nuanced and sophisticated, and it can take into consideration all the different kinds of people and states that they might be in that we must move towards in love. Um, Paul is uh, writing the Thessalonians, and um, he says this. He says, We urge you, brothers... Warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is god 's will for you in Christ Jesus here Here are the five or six things that First Thessalonians says ought to be a part of our movement towards people as we, we move towards people we 're in conflict with in love. first of all, he says it may be. Appropriate that you warn the idol. Uh, What does he mean by that? Uh, Other translations say confront the rebel. A rebel or um, um, an idol person is someone who is clearly violating one of God's commands. Uh, In the context of 1 Thessalonians, these Christians were likely those who were avoiding work because they thought that the Lord's coming would happen immediately. And so what is, what is Paul doing in 1 Thessalonians? He's loving them by warning them. Look, you not working is a violation of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is not just about Sabbath rest. It's about six days you shall work. Um, you're violating an, an obvious command. And so Paul confronts them and says, you can't do that. You need to get to work. Um, then the other option may be that you encourage the timid. Uh, verse 14 says, uh, Encourage the timid. What's that? Uh, Come alongside the fearful and bring encouragement. Again, if you look at the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Um, it is a letter of encouragement to those who are struggling to live the Christian life in the face of significant difficulty. All right? There's persecution. Um, there is maybe uh, some fear about what's happened to loved ones who've died. So, what does Paul do? He doesn't confront them, he comes alongside and encourages them. They're timid, they're fearful, and they need encouragement. Another option would be help the weak. Again, you see how he's just nuancing this. Um, this is, this is a, a literally uh, a phrase that means hold on to them, cling to them, put your arm around them. And it's figurative language that Paul is using here that really is saying, you want to you help somebody in their walk of faith as they grow in grace. And sometimes it means that you have to say, all right, this is what it looks like. Um, and probably who uh, Paul has in mind here, and this is all based on stott 's commentary on First Thessalonians, is he probably has uh, those in mind who are finding it difficult, who are coming out of, out of promiscuous lives, lifestyles, sexual promiscuity, and they 're having a hard time allowing the gospel to begin to transform them at that level and paul says you 've got to walk with them okay you 've got to help." the weak and then look uh, three other things says be patient Uh, what does that mean it means that whether you're warning the idle, or you're encouraging the timid or you're helping the weak you're doing that for a really really long time yeah this is the way i operate um, my child is being rebellious, obvious violation of God's command, confront the rebel, I've done it once, it should be over. You know, it should be fixed. You know, I, but what does what the passage call me to? No, it probably means you're going to have to do that for a really, really long time. Maybe 18 years, maybe 40 years. Who knows? Um, so there's this call in all of that to be patient. What is that? To be long-fused to be willing to go the distance with people. This is so not describing me, by the way. This is not where I go. Uh, apart from God's grace, none of us do. Then he says, revoke revenge. Um, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. And this is just the whole practice of forgiveness. That's a whole other topic that we could talk about, where you're, you're, you're not making people pay for what they've done to you particularly sins that they've committed against you. And then look how he finishes it there. And then he says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There's this call again to worship. Why? Because if you get in the thick of people's lives in this way, you are going to be tempted to defect in your worship, whether you become self-righteous whether you become discouraged, whether you say, you know what? I'm not getting what I want out of this relationship and I'm really trying. And I'm not going to try anymore because it's not working. Well, what's happening? I'm not worshiping the living God at that moment when I'm talking like that. I'm worshiping myself. And so there's this call to worship. Uh, What's the big question that grows out of this, this union with Christ? What will it look like to love this person. And let me, let me add a word here. What will it look like to love this person wisely? With skill. All right, let me, let me, use this, let me finish with this illustration, okay? <clears throat> take one, you heard about 30 minutes ago. Here's take two. Same scenario. I'm driving home five o'clock, and guess what? I know that I love comfort. And by God's grace, um, almost 45 now, and I think I've finally figured out that this is a tendency in my life. All right? It's taken me that long to see it. Um, I wouldn't have seen it had I not gotten married and had kids. God is, in a counterintuitive way, through conflict, rescuing me from myself. So I'm I'm aware of this. I know that I've been irritable. I've turned into drill sergeant. I've gotten angry. I've violated the Sixth Commandment Uh, with the people I say I love, okay? These aren't difficult people. These aren't people that are trying to do me in. These are, you know, this is my wife and my children. So I'm having a hard time loving them. Boy, Uh, I'm on my way home. I know comfort is something that, that tends to morph in my life and i can i can find myself worshiping it very easily very quickly so what have i got to do i've i've got to kick against the darkness till it bleeds daylight i've got to identify that and then what i've got to i've got to understand remember think union with christ that leads me to communion at that moment in the car while i'm riding home and here's i gave you a sense last week of what this looks like. Here's another take on what it looks like for me. And it's going to sound different for all of us, but the same stuff is there. By the way, what, I, what I'm talking about here is meditation. When I talk about communion with God, meditation, you know what meditation is? Meditation is combining biblical truth with prayer. That's, that's communion with the living God. All right. Truth being wedded with prayer, crying out for help and mercy in these in these mundane moments of life. So I'm going home, and here's, here's what I do. Uh, Philippians 2 has become a very dear passage to me. Because Philippians 2, you read Philippians 2, and what, what's it a picture of? Jesus, who did not think equality with God was something that he had to hold on to voluntarily, let go of that, humbled himself. It, it's a picture of Jesus saying, I'm willing to let go of the comfort of glory. And so I'm, I'm riding home, and I'm thinking Philippians 2. And the way I describe it is I'm, I'm, I'm now beginning to move towards um, what the Old Testament prophets called mocking their idols. Remember the Old Testament prophets? Remember what they would do? They would see a stick of wood that the people of Israel were worshiping and they would say why are you worshiping that stick of wood that's all it is a stick of wood it's, it's nicely carved but has it ever spoken has it ever heard anything that you've said has it ever acted in your behalf the prophets mock the idols why so they can say now let's talk about the living God who listens who speaks who acts in your behalf so I'm using Philippians 2 and I'm mocking my idol I'm mocking the thing that I have a tendency to worship other than the living God Comfort, Philippians 2, when was the last time you left your place of glory and prominence and humbled yourself? Comfort, when did you um, humble yourself and when did you become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for me? Comfort, when did you, um, when were you raised from the dead so that I could be justified? Comfort, when did you ascend to the Father and send the Spirit? Comfort, when did you ever promise to come and, and return and rescue me completely from the ravages of sin? Now, what have I done? I, I'm, I'm engaging in meditation at that point. Philippians 2, mocking the idol, beginning to just cry out to God, Lord, thank you, forgive me, give me grace, change me. And what what has happened is that comfort... That was at, at this place, functionally, and the living God here, imagine that, okay? I've, I've forsaken the living God for a temporal, immaterial experience of comfort. That's what I've done. And yet, God in His grace and His mercy pursues me. I'm repenting, I'm believing, I'm engaging in communion with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Comfort gets demoted, and Christ gets promoted, Now, notice I don't say comfort gets thrown away on the the ash heap as a bad and evil thing. No, comfort is one of those good things that is appropriate to enjoy. Rest, leisure. Um, You could argue from the fourth commandment that God says comfort and leisure is a good thing. So comfort gets demoted to its proper place. Uh, And as Lewis says, guess what? That... That experience of comfort doesn't get decreased, but it gets increased because I'm enjoying it as a blessing and not my blesser. Um, all right, that's happening in my car. And I, no doubt I'll have to do this tonight when I leave. Um, I walk in the back door, same stuff going on. Two kids fighting over the computer, two kids frustrated over the homework. And I may come in and I may warn the idol, confront the rebel. You know, maybe one of my kids is actually hitting another one of my kids. Well, that's something that needs to be confronted. But I'm going to do it in a much different way. I'm going to do it in a redemptive way. Uh, I may may encourage the fearful. Um, Maybe one of my kids is is upset because of something that happened at school. And if I had come in like drill sergeant, I would have missed a redemptive opportunity. But I come in and I'm patient. Well, what's wrong? Oh, well, tell me about that. And I I might speak words of encouragement to that one. Another one's over here, and he can't make sense of eight times eight. You know? And I know it's 64, but they don't. And they're just struggling. And I I come alongside figuratively and hold the child's hand and say, let's do multiplication. Okay. Um, What do my kids come away with when that's happening? Not drill sergeant is home. Everybody step in line or you're going to catch it. But our father's home. He's our shepherd. He cares for us. Um, That that is a practical picture of how union with Christ plays itself out in, um, in the lives of the ones that I say I love. But I'm so quickly prone to mishandle and misuse because... I have this propensity to stray in my worship. Um, Open up for Q&A, but let me just give you just some practical suggestions. Surely surely all of you here tonight, um, if you look at your relationships, there's this huge continuum. Over here is like horrible and over here is perfect. All right, probably none of you have any perfect relationships, so they 're somewhere on this continuum and you've got you 've got relationships that span the continuum I do um, What should you do? well, need to sit down with you and talk with you in detail, but here are just some basic things that I think are um, important as you think about uh, not ridding the room of argument and emptying the emptying your life of the people you need the most. I would say the first thing you've got to do is you've got to understand the problem. Uh, use my, my wife and I as an example. We're, we're in an argument. We're having conflict. The best thing we can do is say, all right, wait a minute. What in the world are we fighting about? You know, and she may be frustrated about something and I may be frustrated about something else or there may be eight things. We say, all right, let's just pick one. <laughs> and let's... Let's focus on this one problem. The second thing would be just, all right, now let's let's do some self examination. My wife and I will talk in the kitchen if an argument flares up between us and we will say, gosh, I wonder what I want right now more than Christ. I mean that that's you know, that seems but what is that? That's conversation that has kind of a sanctification agenda built into it. It's not how can we keep our marriage happy, but no, where do I need to repent and where do I need to grow? Um, And how is God using you in my life at this moment to push me there, to help me see things that I wouldn't see? Um, I would say if the relationship can handle it, you may want to sit down together and say, let's just walk through James and ask those big questions as we think about this particular conflict. Third thing I would say is seek forgiveness where you have committed sin, own whatever percentage you think is yours. Uh, Don't say, I'm not going to own anything because it's 90% your fault and 10% mine. Um, I would say that's probably revisionist history. Um, We tend to always see ourselves in a better light than we really are. But own, own whatever sin is there that you need to own. Um, admit that it's wrong and ask for forgiveness and say that, will you forgive me? Um, grant forgiveness. This, this is a, this is an amazing thing. And this happens between me and my wife. Um, it, it took us like 10 years into marriage to figure it out. Even though, um, you know, the Lord's prayer talks about asking for and granting forgiveness as if it's a daily thing. Can you imagine that? You know, what do you mean? I, I sin against people daily. Um, people sin against me daily. The Lord's Prayer seems to say, yeah, that happens. Um, but I've, I've noticed when one of us will initiate and just own whatever we need to own, that we've contributed to the problem. Typically, now it doesn't always happen, but typically the other person is softened by that and they own what they need to own. Uh, yeah, thanks for saying that. Yes, I will forgive you. And will you forgive me? I've, I've just been... Uh, I haven't been... Uh, on the hot anger side of things, I've been on the cold anger side of things. I've been bitter, distant, cold. Uh, that was wrong. Will you forgive me? The fourth thing I would say you ought to do at that point. I mean, that's, that's some good stuff right there, but you want to learn from the conflict. You want to begin to explore possible solutions. How can we grow? How can we avoid this next time? What are the signs That we need to see that we're going there. When does this typically happen? And let's implement a solution. Let's explore possible solutions. Let's let's agree on a particular solution that grows out of um, a gospel confidence. And then I would say evaluate, you know, a week or two afterwards. How are we doing? And then I always say this. I used to say it to couples that I would do premarital counseling with. Um, if, if you get stuck, be willing to get outside help. That's a sign of humility. All right. You see, you see James 4? It uses, I think, the marriage metaphor... You, you don't have to only use that metaphor, but it's there, and I, I wanted to use it. I want to talk about how that marriage metaphor, unpacking you with Christ, begins to move us in new and different ways in terms of our relationships with one another. When you, when you are united to Christ by faith and repentance, you, you automatically get united to a lot of other people that are united to Him. And you share, you share a more intense personal Mysterious bond with them than you do people that you are related to physically, uh, and I, I need to grow in this area. I know you do too. We have got to live out that that covenant commitment with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's only going to happen when union with Christ grabs us at that practical, functional level. Okay. Okay. Fire away. Um, If you're talking particularly about forgiveness, um, I I would say that the Bible tends to talk about forgiveness along these two lines. There's a vertical aspect of forgiveness and a horizontal aspect. And this horizontal aspect is usually called, in most circles, reconciliation. and the horizontal is always contingent upon the vertical. And I would just say this. I, I always have a responsibility before the Lord to be willing to grant forgiveness to someone if they pursue it and ask for it. And I'm to practice forgiveness. And what does that mean? I'm, I'm not to, to try to make them pay for what they did to me. And hopefully... If if this is happening with me, this this is going to happen as well. But this may not happen. It may never happen.
1: Thus my experience has been with people who um, had uh, problems with alcohol or drugs in their background, mm-hmm. and uh, thus uh, what was talked about or said was was. Um, not clear. Not. Uh, um, what do I want to say? Well, I can only sort of say it in cliches by making a mountain out of a molehill, or making a molehill into a mountain. You know, and so you know, trying to figure out what the problem was was huge. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you talking about with with the attic?
1: Or, or just in a family situation mm-hmm. where there is alcoholism? Almost everybody I know has been affected by alcoholism. And so that really makes uh, finding out what's really true. Everything's so mixed up. In, in, I mean, this is so nice and clean and, you know, in the box.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But most relationships are not
0: there. Yeah, no. And this is a very mature re- response. Yeah, and I, I would say that's where that, that issue of patience kicks in. You know, the, the, the whole call to patience is a recognition that relationships are very messy. And, and, they, and they're not tidy. And, and um, finding out where your um, resources are for finding out what the truth is, where your responsibilities lie, you know, yeah. that's a very difficult thing. It is, yeah. And, and addicts, people who are addicted to chemicals, whatever you want to call it, enslaved to things, are very good at, uh, at manipulation, lies... Uh, revisionist history. I mean, I, I've I've seen it. I've seen it in my own family. And you up around it, you
1: too. Mm-hmm. You may not even know that, that you're all great,
0: Sure, you've been yeah, you've been shaped by that. Um, and, and that that just requires great wisdom as you think about it. what does it look like? I have a, a family member who is uh, has been um, chemically dependent enslaved to things since he was fifteen. And I'm always asking myself, what does it look like for me to love this family member wisely? And um, there are times when it has meant, no, I'm not listening to your revisionist history. And you're not going to make me feel guilty for what you've done. But, right, yeah. But I've said, look, I love you. And if you want to do this relationship right, I'm here. And then there have been other times when I've overlooked the fences, um, but it's it's immensely complicated. That's where you know the Bible says when you're able to love your enemies or love those who are sinning against you, you have you are you are uh, you are evidencing a degree of maturity and growth and grace that's utterly miraculous because we have a hard time loving people that we say we love and that say they love us. You know, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think that can be a bit uh, unsettling, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I guess I in guess a good way. Like, yeah, but I also think that a lot of, at least a lot of conflict in my life is like percentage, it's not mm-hmm. like just me or just the other person.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But if but if you're saying but if you're moving towards them and saying look, I want to understand what it feels like to be in a relationship with me because I want to see change. Um, I I've asked my wife that. Okay. You know where are there problems in our relationship and and what what do I bring to the marriage that's problematic? Now that's not a real fun question to ask. Okay, and. Uh, I mean, you, you really have to be emboldened by God's grace to know that you're united to Christ, that He's for you. And, you know, and that's usually the only time that I'll even remotely move in that direction and put that on the table. But I, I, think, I think that's a good question to be willing to ask people. And, and be willing to hear what they say with ears of grace. Say, so, you know, they may exaggerate. But there's something there that I need to hear. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. This? hmm hmm Yeah, I think, you, I think you have to be sensitive to stage of development, um, all kinds of dynamics, what the child is like. I, I have uh, um, I've got uh, one child that um, just shuts down when he gets angry. And it's hard to move towards him, um, and so I have to really, um, I have to really be patient to not push every time there's an issue, but to to do it enough where there may be this opportunity where he'll open up. And there are times when he does, and um, real good things. He, yeah, um, I could share some examples another child you could sit down and they're just you know putting it out there and they they tend to be the ones that you like to sit down and talk with because it's easy and they're you know they're in touch with their feelings and they can verbalize it but then i've I've, again i've got other kids that aren't there and i have to take a whole different approach patience kicks in more there than with the ones that are more verbal and self-conscious and aware um But and I would say, you know, I wouldn't be as logical and methodical as I've been with you guys tonight teaching through this. There may be one thing that I. I'll stress or emphasize, Um, and, you know, my my experience, again, with my kids and my wife is when I go as a father, owning whatever part that I've contributed to the difficulty, if I've been a part of it. Maybe I didn't start it, but I wasn't very redemptive in the way that I responded. If I go and own that, that tends to create more of an atmosphere of interaction. And I, I, I regularly, I think it's good, I regularly um, let my kids know that I need Jesus. You know, it's not just them, but I do. And I say, you, you remember when I got angry with you tonight? You see how, how much I've still got to change? But guess what? I'm not like I used to be. God's at work. There's hope. He can change us, and he does. Um, so I, I just I think it's important to put that stuff out there and verbalize it. Talk about your own struggles, but how God meets you uh, with his grace and, and changes you. And, yeah, you just, you're just sensitive to what you think the child can handle. And I, I know, I, I can talk, be talking with some of my kids, and I think things are going real well, and they start shutting down, and I think, okay, I need to stop. You know, you've been there. Sometimes that happens with my wife. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, it's, it's, it can be mutual. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you. Let me uh, let me just pray for us. And if you want to talk with me afterwards, you can. I'll be here for a little while. Father, um, we are um, people who are desperately needy every single second of every single day. And our great... Um, our great sin is somehow believing that we're not desperately needy. Um, and we think that we can stand and we can stand on our own. And yet you remind us, beware that uh, if you think you stand on your own, um, that you're going to fall. Uh, pride comes before a fall. And what's what's amazing is even in our falling <laughs> Because your grace is so rich and redemptive, you use those failures and those moments of falling um, to remind us of our need of grace, to awaken us to that, that desperate state that we're in daily. And you relentlessly pursue us and stay in relationship with us. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are and who you are and who you've been to us in Christ. Thank you for the relationship that we can enjoy with you, that we have with you. And, and may it, as we've been talking, translate very practically into our lives with our spouses, our children, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, uh, family members, whomever. Uh, will, you, will you allow these things to penetrate to the inward, uh, innermost parts of our lives and express them in our, in our daily relationships for Jesus' sake. Amen.